0: Um, Earlier this week, as I was preparing for today, I uh, texted a young man from our church that I know loves cars, Uh, young is relative term, he's 32, I texted him and, uh, hey, hey John, uh, uh, if I were to reference a commercially available really cool sports car, like, what would be some you would recommend maybe that I use for an illustration? and. Obviously, you can tell I'm not necessarily a car guy. And uh, boom, he's just all over that. He sends me like four different ideas on cars, three of which I was like, I don't know if I can use those three because I can't even pronounce them uh, in that um, with it. So I decided to go with this one, uh, the Lamborghini Aventador SVJ. Oh, is that beautiful? Um... And here's my illustration. Uh, We want to to have life happen and we want to do life like that. Uh, We are just that kind of a people where we tend to want to do life in a Lamborghini, Aventador, SVJ kind of a way. I mean, after all, we love what that does. Uh, I mean, let me give you some facts here. Uh, V12 759 horsepower, 531 pound-feet of torque, which I actually know what that means, which kind of bothers me. <laughs> One horsepower per, four, per 4.4 pounds of the car. Pedal to the metal 217 miles an hour. Zero to 62. Not zero to 60. Zero to 62 in 2.8 seconds. <laughs> Grease lightning, man. And that's how we like life to happen. We love what it does. Uh, we also, uh, truth of the matter is, is, we love what it displays. Like here's a couple things it displays. That displays sheer engineered beauty. I mean, the work that goes into that and the engineering that goes into making all of that torque happen and everything, it's also, it it displays rarity. Only 900 have been produced. Uh, Everyone doesn't get one of these. Only 900 people on the face of the earth uh, have these. And there's also just this element of it's it's stunning turn your head success. I mean, let's be real. You see someone driving that, you're, in your mind it's either like they're doing something wrong and illegal <laughs> or, or, or they have achieved uh, something in that because I think it's like a half million dollars uh, type of a car. No, I don't have one, trust me. But we tend to think life should happen that way. I kind of put it this way. We tend to think that life should happen pedal to the metal, full fulfillment, get there ASAP. We kind of think that it should be zero to wealth, zero to security in 2.8 seconds out on the table. And we tend to think that life should somehow just fall in the kind of a place where it's all perfectly engineered in a sheer beauty kind of a way. And then we look at our lives and it's like, I don't know about you, but it's not happening that way. And we lose sight of really what's going on and even where we live but we love what that does, we love what it displays, and I bring all this up because we've been studying in the life of David here this year, and early this year we were in the latter half of 1 Samuel, and now we're in the second in Samuel, and I don't think this life, this card describes David's life. Now you would think that it might. I mean, come on, King David. You would think, vroom, vroom, baby. That dude's got it. And there's a part of it where uh, in it all, uh, I would say, okay, maybe it started that way. Like Samuel shows up at his family farm in Bethlehem. Hey, send the boys in front of me. Not him, not him, not him. Oh, well, how about the one from the sheep pen? Yeah, him, vroom, vroom. Uh, I going to anoint him to be king of Israel. Uh, And then you come into the next chapter of 1 Samuel, and and you find out there he is with uh, taking down Goliath. Vroom, vroom. But I'm telling you, after that, none of this. In fact, it's 10, 12, 13, 15 years of, let's see, what might be an automobile that could better describe it? How about this? A military Hummer. I I mean, that's really been, there's many ways where it's like, that's still cool. (laughs) However, in the whole movement of it all, David's life uh, for all these years when from a young man for 10, 12, 13, 40, again, a number of years, uh, David is on the run in the desert, enemy fire throwing at him all the time, just trying to stay alive. And in it, you read through David's life and you're like, really, that's how God did it? Like God did it that way? I, I'll tell you this, I can actually relate more to that than a Lamborghini life. And I think you probably can too. And there's a lot of hope in that. And then last Sunday, we come into 2 Samuel and David learns that King Saul and his best bud, Jonathan, are both dead from battle. And there's an aspect of that I, I kind of noted in, in maybe terminology of today. There's an aspect of that when he learned from that from the Sojourner Amal- Amalekite, uh, a, a Lamborghini kind of thinking life would be like, whoo, vroom, vroom, to the throne, here I go. And yet, in it all, that hasn't been the story of David's life. Because in all of this, I ask the question, what happens when a guy who is now in line for the throne, is he going to Lamborghini his way? Or what's he going to do? What is, might I say it this way, what is a war-experienced, green beret, 29-year-old, maybe I would call it one-star general dude, living in Philistine territory in Ziklag, how's he going to respond to all this now at this point? And here's the interesting thing of it all. He laments. He mourns and he weeps. Hey, guys, real men can weep. Real men know what mourning is. So do women. But you kind of get it more naturally. Oh, by the way, he doesn't just weep and mourn as we saw last Sunday. We now are going to be in this part, if you would, turn to uh, first or 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, page 237. If you're using one of the Bibles behind the seats there, it's page 254 in my Bible, if that's of any help. Somewhere in the mid-200s. Um... In this, we all of a sudden come and we find David is not only mourning, but David is writing poetry. Real men can write poetry. I don't. But I guess I'm not a real man. (laughs) From what I just said. (laughs) Caught myself there. He writes poetry. I'm going to tell you when I'd set up this series, honestly transparently, I had intended to Lamborghini my way through chapter one and through this text. Um, I just, I don't know, I'm kinda like you, I'm kinda like the typical American. I don't like to sit and lament in poetry. But it's something, I don't know. Time went along, and with what I see happening in our world this week, Um, we don't know how to lament. So it's time to observe David and some lamenting. So I've used cars in this illustration process so far, and he's writing poetry. What kind of car might represent poetry? Hmm. Well, if you've been in my office, you would know and seen my museum you would know that a VW bus would properly represent poetry. I'm going to tell you, it takes a certain kind of hippie sophistication (laughs) to understand the depth of a VW bus. All of those in favor? (laughs) (laughs) Poetry has a VW sophistication in it. Am I I giving myself too much credit? (laughs) Um, But here's one of the things about uh, when you come to biblical poetry and why I'm doing this, I want to have a little fun. I know it's a lament, but in this, you kind of have to be in a different framework of mind. And I think, if you will, uh, that helps us. Listen, if you want to get somewhere fast, don't drive that. Let me tell you a little bit of stats on this. It's air-cooled. How cool is that? It's a V4, four-cylinder engine, 40 horsepower. That's like some lawnmowers have 40 horsepower. It goes from zero to 60, they say, in 37 seconds, but I suggest that's downhill. (laughs) If you want to get somewhere fast, don't drive this. But if you want to be in a state of mind where you're just in it to pick some things up, that's where you want to be. And so that's where I want us to be. I want us to be in this kind of a place here for a little while, poetry. Robert Frost says, poetry is when an emotion has found its thought and the thought has found words. By the way, what's just happened most likely in your mind is you had to go back and reread it again. That's what poetry does. You kind of hear it, and then it's like, I got to go back and pull that together now. Uh, Carl Sandburg says, poetry is an echo asking a shadow to dance. Lord, I pray as we sit with some time in this poetic lament of David that um, these echoes would dance. I I ask that uh, you would just help us to lean into you and that this, this poetry would lean into us. No grand outlines today, Lord just these words. So capture us. Echo into our minds, into our hearts. And God, help us dance. Not just with joy, but with depth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um... David is writing this in Ziklag. Ziklag is in Philistine territory. Ziklag has been David's home place for about a year and a half plus now. Where David sits, he most likely smells the ashes of Ziklag having just been burned down. Uh, You see, he and his men, just the week or two prior, had had gone north for a mission. And when they came home, they found their wives and children taken captive and their town burned to the ground. This wasn't a year ago. This wasn't six months ago. This wasn't even a month ago. This was likely either last week or the prior week before. And David is sitting in that. Oh, and then, by the way, we we learned last Sunday that the first half of chapter one of 2 Samuel, we learned that David is informed that the people of Israel in the battle up north are on the run, that King Saul is dead, and King Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best bud, is dead. Friends, you have to understand when we read this, disaster is all around. And David has not sorted through all this. You know, we're we're the kind of people where we don't like to sit and lament. We're kind of like the kind of people where it's like, here, let me give you the number of steps to get out of that hurt. You know, because we want to get you past this as quick as possible. We want a Lamborghini your way through. And friends, uh, uh, that is not the way lament works. I want to read to you uh, uh, Pastor Mark Vrokop, uh, pastor of College Park Church here in Indianapolis, and he wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Listen to some of the words he wrote about lament. He says, lament is a prayer, a statement of faith. Lament is the honest cry of a human heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is rooted in what we believe. It is a prayer loaded with theology. Lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian commend this book to you if you would like to do some more reading on lament, dark clouds, deep mercy. This is where David is at. He's writing from a place of pain. But within it, there is a promise. It's interesting, in the whole text, there is not even a direct reference made to God or to Yahweh. Interesting, isn't it? And yet it is thoroughly biblical and fully vertical. This lament is not rhymy. It's not roses are red, violets are blue, blah, 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 blah. This is not 20th century poetry and it's not 21st century poetry. This is 1010 10 BC poetry. It's not reactionary. And I'm also going to note it's not even angry You see, I say it that way because it's lament. And I don't even think we know the difference between those two sometimes. There's pain in this. And David's, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah Behold, it is written in the book of Yeshar. Just a couple comments. Note, he's not writing it to put in his dresser drawer. He's not writing it in his journal just to keep for himself. There are times for those, and absolutely. But but he, even we have the intent here that, that this lament is to be taught. It's not just for David. David actually has this, the, the idea that other people need to see this. I want my people to carry this to be a motivating reality. They have to see this, to continue on. It's important. It should be taught. He noticed, notes that it's the, uh, the book of Yeshar, uh, Joshua 10.13. By Yeshar, it, it carries this idea of the book of the upright. Uh, John 10, thir- or Joshua 10.13 makes reference to it as well. It's likely a collection of poetic war or heroic poetry of key moments in history at the time. This was one of them. King Saul just died. This is a moment, and it's put in there. But before we go on, I just want to note that there is a central theme. In verse 19, in verse 25, verse 27, there's a statement, it's how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty. The idea of the context here is mighty, even in the Hebrew carries this idea of how the warriors have fallen. This is a military sense, this is a battle sense. This is a a Green Beret, one-star general writing about a battle reality that's happened, and he's making reference to this, oh, how the mighty. And, And note in this, the might, mighty, that's something we relate to. We love might. In fact, I would suggest our culture calls for people, oh, you need to be mighty. Mighty in prosperity, Mighty in fame, mighty as a YouTuber, mighty as whatever it might be. This is not distant from us, we get might and the yearning for it. The mighty, and it's how they have fallen. Hey friends, might, human might is temporary. Human might is temporal and relative. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. 2 Corinthians 5:10, so we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is gonna be leveled there when we stand before the Almighty. Hey friends, it doesn't matter if you are a trillionaire or if you are in debt by trillions. When we stand before the Almighty, all things are leveled. And yet how much sweat and tear and effort do we put into trying to be mighty? Mighty in strength, mighty in comfort, mighty in security. So here I have this question as we proceed ahead. What might is the lust of your heart? Not if there is one. There is. What might has a tendency to you for, to lust after? Because, friend, the mighty fall. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Intriguing opening. Intriguing opening to this poem you would think that David would start out with his myopic statement, but he doesn't. David actually starts with the big picture statement. He is not just seeing what's happening in his own little personal life or in his own family life. He's not just seeing what's happening with his military men and their families or his city life. He smells the ashes of his city having been burned to the ground. And yet, he's even thinking beyond that. I would suggest he starts out thinking theologically here. He's actually kind of carrying over a tone here. He's seeing the big picture. The big picture is that this is far beyond him, far beyond his family, far beyond his men, far beyond the city that is burned down. This is, has to do with his people and the people that are not just people that he loves, but people who have a unique reality upon their lives by God. He is seeing, because he has been informed, that even his people, the Israelites, are on the run. And David in this place, over these last years of it all, David sees a people and he sees his people not being, not uh, uh, experiencing what God had promised. My goodness, God had promised Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 that God would raise up a nation, a people who in Exodus 19 we are told will be priests of the nation. He would give them a sending base place to be priests to the nation and David is looking here, and I think theologically, he's thinking through all that God had intended for his people. And in this, it's not happening. The very people that God said who blessed them will be blessed. And those who curse them will be cursed. Those are the very people that are on the run for their lives. And it's not full, fulfilling out the way God had promised, and that's the way the pain and the promise and all this. David is wrestling with what's going on and even with, with what's taking place with his own people and with God's people. Hey friends, uh, if I can just put on the table, how often do we as followers of Christ lament the big picture of friends? What's happening with God's people? We have even become a nation of people founded on Christian principles, and we are Bible illiterate. I I am not saying that the promises to Israel are the direct promises to America. I don't think that's the case at all. But do we lament over not just how our own lives but God's people are being so sucked in to looking like the rest of the world? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Hey, uh, these two cities that he names, these would be equal to Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City. These are the big cities. These are the major metropolises of the Philistine territory. And David is going, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. The people who worship Dagon. Oh, it just breaks my heart that they would be celebrating in the streets that the people who claim Yeshua, that the people who claim Yahweh are being laughed at. Oh, the pain. And yet, David is holding to promise. Verse 21 The mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. This is poetry right here. Listen, the mountain didn't do anything, but Mount Gilboa was the mountain where King Saul died. And it's like he's given this curse on a mountain. Curse on you. May you not grow grass anymore. (laughs) Oh, but friends, we know this isn't just about some curse on a mountain. He's stating a poetic reality, a picture that's supposed to dance, that even in places like that, horrible things take place. Oh, it shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. It's interesting that statement, not anointed with oil, in in that day. um, uh, Poetically, again, he's using uh, something of the day. Shields in that day were made of wood and then covered with leather. And and that's what actually held it together, made it stronger. And, And so in it, what happened in that desert territory, they would have to oil the leather, otherwise the leather would dry up and it would become useless. And he's making, as poetry does, he's making this uh, uh, a reference to this very shield of Saul. It's like describing his life. There was a time where it was oiled and yet it's dried up and shriveled away and it has become what it was never supposed to be. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. It's an interesting thing. If we had more time, I'd I'd take some on it, but it's just simply this. David is not just reflecting back on the moment of what's taking place and even seeing what's ahead. David's reflecting back in time and grabbing a hold of moments in time when there was great success, Saul, in, in, in for the Lord. When there were things happening, And yet, Saul and David we find dying on the battlefield, and yet there was a time of united, and yet there's also pain in the fact that there was a whole bunch of dysfunction going on. Hey friends, in times of lament, you go back and you even grab a hold of the high moments. And even when there may have been a lot of low moments, you still cling on to some of those. And you should. Because even in the pain, God's grace is always alive. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. He's just making reference to, I think, the, the wealthy women. Some think it may be the, the, the women at the palace or uh, in the city. E- either way, it's, it's, remember the moment Saul brought some, some wealth. But then it all leads to verse 25. We might even put in front of it, but. But how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. He goes on, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. so sad when a broken world takes something marvelous and just breaks it. David is talking about here is a relationship with a, a, a brother. I mean, Jonathan and David had this covenant relationship kind of a thing. Jonathan was about seeing David fulfill what God had called David to be. These were two brothers for Yahweh, enduring for Yahweh, proceeding for Yahweh in all of the pain and the hurt of life, cheering each other on. That's what this is about. And there is nothing more beautiful than that. having talked here or there with a a few people who have gone to war and been in war with their brothers. And there is a thing that is there that is unlike. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, to have someone who fights with and for you together. What a beautiful, manly, womanly, kind of thing, that's a brotherhood may I say it in modern day terms brothers and sisters like that for Christ together in the war more of that and David is mourning that and yet he even brings it I think then he states that Jonathan is just this close lovely, deep God driven relationship oh how the mighty have fallen And the weapons of war have perished. Straight on the table. I've dreaded concluding this sermon. And yet... I say that because I have so many thoughts dancing in my head. I was back at the office yesterday trying and trying to work through to an end here. You know, and we're supposed to wrap everything up nice and swift and clean and it should have the same letter all the way through. So a couple dancing thoughts. We don't know how to lament. We don't know how to mourn. We just want to get past it, through it, on to the next thing, because we are about feeling good. And when life hurts, we react by get out of it now. And I'm going to suggest that's unbiblical. Lament and mourning is a process. And I even think here part of what David's whole idea is, this is something to be taught so that we don't forget. Life is learned out of lament. Don't run from it. James won it. God, teach me everything I need through it. Another thought dancing in my head. I think that this poem here represents a dramatic change, or I should say, is maybe the fulcrum point of a dramatic change that is about to happen for the coming decades with David and the people of Israel. If you follow through this and where we're going to be going in 2 Samuel, I'm wondering right now, it might very well be out of this very lament that is the fulcrum point of God bringing grand things beyond what David and his people could ever imagine. And it's just, Ironic to me that it's about some 13 years in point where there's a fulcrum point of greater things for the Lord than people could ever imagine. And we're 13 years old and God, it's dancing in my head. Might we invade the west side of Indianapolis with the hope of the gospel, unlike we've ever seen, ever known. Dancing in my head. How the mighty have fallen. Go ahead and put that up. Psalm 46, 6 through 7. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God Of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Hey friends, nations are raging and kingdoms are tottering right before our eyes. And we should be lamenting And there is a pain that is there, and yet there is a promise that is here. And so, oh God, in the pain of it all, the promise of who you are, you are a fortress. And in this, we just want to engineer it beautifully all together, fitting all the pieces, having all the explanations, seeing every rivet, seeing every bolt, seeing every gear, seeing every movement of everything, sinking together, making complete sense before us. And Lord, we stand here as broken people in a broken world and we don't care what's going on. And so Lord, we declare our pain or lack of understanding. Families being devastated. Afghanis being crushed. Haitians dealing with earthquakes and storms. And it goes on and on around this earth. And in the pain of it, as we see it, we, we, we have to cling to the fact, the promise that you one day are going to make all things right. And so, Lord, I don't ask right at this moment for you to pull us out of it, I ask that you would give us the endurance to work through it. For your glory, for your purposes, help us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.